This morning's sermon text is from 2 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. 2 Samuel 2. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahanom of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Father, we thank you for this time of prayer, and more than that, Lord, we thank you for your heart to hear and answer our prayers. Thank you for being such a kind and compassionate God. And again, Father, by faith, we thank you for whatever the outcome will be. Lord, as we now turn our hearts toward your word, I pray that you would speak in power by the Holy Spirit. Father, you did things in the life of David, and you preserved these stories to give us encouragement and hope and joy in a spirit of faith and of patience and of perseverance for the journey that lies ahead of us. So please come now and by your word, strengthen your people for the glory of your name. Father, I thank you for what you've done in my life this week as I've meditated on this story. And I thank you so much for what you'll do in our lives together now. In Jesus' high and holy and happy name, we pray these things. Amen. According to the counsel of God's will, God the Father sees with infinite perfection the very best ways to exalt the glory of his name and to maximize the joy of the Trinity in that and to maximize the joy of everybody who looks to him in faith forever and even to win the willing submission of people who have rejected the name of God and the will and the ways of God, but who will one day bow down and confess with their mouths that he is Lord. And because of the perfection of what he sees, God the Father conceives purposes for the world. And on the basis of his purposes, God makes promises, especially to his people. He speaks out promises to us that we can understand. And in order to fulfill his promises, God devises intricate plans, so intricate that they could never be written out and they could never be printed. If every printer on the planet was dedicated to the task, it's just too big of a file, just too big of a plan, too big of a document. Beloved, God knows how to cut the path from where all things are to where he wants all things to be. But here's the thing for those of us who look to him in faith. Whereas he will help us to know at least his primary purposes through his word, and whereas he will help us to understand his promises and to know his promises and to cherish and to pray on the basis of his promises, when it comes to his plans, he lets us know just enough, but he often hides the majority of his plans from us, doesn't he? He keeps the how of his purposes mysteriously hidden from us. 
And I believe that the Father does this in order to develop in us, as a people and as individuals, a heart of faith. I believe that the Father keeps us from knowing too much so that he can develop in us as a people and as individuals a childlike trust and a childlike wonder. Oh, how I can remember walking around with my father and going to the restaurants and working with my father and playing baseball with my father. And I frankly did not need to know a lot about what was coming in the next week or month or year because I trusted my daddy and I looked to him. And I just believe that God, our father, our greater father, who will never die, that he wants to develop this kind of childlike wonder in us. So he keeps certain things hidden from us. He's just gracious like that. I believe God, our Father, withholds certain things from us because whereas he knows that there is a tremendous glory that we cannot imagine awaiting for us at our final destination, there is also glory on every side waiting for us on the journey itself. And in fact, as Kimmy pointed out to me the other day, and as we've talked about many times, the glory that's there for us on the journey itself is so much a part of the preparation of God in our hearts so that we're ready to receive and enjoy the glory that's awaiting us in his presence. Amen? Beloved, the Lord knows what he's doing. He lets us know enough, but he doesn't let us know everything. And we have to learn to trust him. Surely, His greatest purpose in heaven and on earth is to exalt Jesus Christ in the sight of all to the very highest place, to exalt him as the great king of all kings, to exalt him as the eternal high priest, to exalt him as the final prophet through whom he has spoken and about whom he has spoken and for whom he has spoken. As it says in Psalm 110, the Lord Yahweh the Father has sworn and he will not change his mind. He has determined purposes in Christ and his purposes will never be altered. They will never be thwarted. Nobody will ever be able to turn back the purposes of God on the basis of his purposes in Christ. The Father has made us very many great and precious promises. Here's just a couple of them. The Lord said that everyone who looks to Jesus and believes in him, who trusts in him for the forgiveness of sins, will be saved. They will be reconciled to God. The Bible says that to all who receive Jesus Christ, He gives them the right to become children of God. We go from enemies of the state to family members. Not just subjects of the king. Children of the father. Oh, what a great promise. What a precious, precious promise. The Lord says that for those who believe, who look to Jesus Christ in faith, that we are sealed with the promised and precious Holy Spirit, with the very presence of God, who is the guarantee, or more literally, that Greek word means the down payments of our inheritance, which we will receive in the final day when Jesus Christ returns again. This is a promise from our Father. And we're told in Revelation 21 that in that final day, Christ will bring us all home. The dead in Christ will rise and those who are living will rise up to join him and we'll be in the presence of God together forever and we will be his people and God himself will be with us as our God and we will have a great and ever increasing joy in Christ, beloved, uh, of a sort and of an intensity that we cannot even imagine, beloved. These promises are very great. 
They're very precious. They're very life-shaping. They're absolutely heart-transforming. But the thing about it is that in this time of our journey with God, so many of the details that are gonna get us from where we are to that destiny where we're gonna be, so many of the details God keeps hidden from us. And so at times the road gets hard, doesn't it? Just this morning I heard a sister in Christ say, sometimes the road is really, really hard. And I relate to that. Sometimes we come to points of our walk with the Lord where if we're being totally honest, we sink into doubt about all of it. Is any of this really true? Is God really who God says he is? Is Jesus really who he says he is? Are his promises really going to come to pass? All the chaos in the world, could any of this really be true? If we're being honest, at least at times we give in to things like that. Sometimes we fall into despair. Sometimes we fall into depression. And I think that this is in part why the Lord has seen fit to preserve for us the stories of David and his like so that through the encouragement of the scriptures, we can have hope and we can press on. We can persevere. Do you see? We're not the first ones to live by faith. Isn't that true? We're the present ones in a very, very, very long line of people who have looked to God and found him to be faithful. And Hebrews tells us that they surround us and shout to us, trust in the Lord. He is faithful. And I believe that God has preserved this specific part of David's story for us that we're gonna look at today. So that in the small purposes he worked out there, we will see his grand purposes that he's working out right now in Jesus Christ. I believe that as we look at this part of David's story and we learn something about how God works, we will trust him while he works in our lives. Oh, beloved, this is so much a part of the scripture, and I pray that this is a little sort of sub-sermon, a sub-lesson that you will learn. Meditate carefully on the biblical stories you read. They're not just stories. They're teaching us how to live by faith. If we can just see how God works, then we can relax and trust him while he works. We get the advantage of seeing David's timeline. We know the beginning and the end and the middle. David did not know these things while he was living them, right? And we don't know our end and our middle while we're living it. But if we can see how God works, we can trust him while he works. And I really pray, with all my heart I pray, that God will give us insight today so that we'll press on in faith, so that we'll press on being patient with the Lord, so that we'll press on and persevere because sometimes, oh, sometimes the way gets long and the way gets hard. After a, a protracted probably at least 10 year long struggle with the man of flesh. David's entire 20s were spent running from Saul. And now his primary nemesis was dead. But you know what? David mourned for him and he did not rejoice in the death of Saul. David wept and he did not gloat. And this I think reveals to us the true nature of his heart even before Saul was brought to justice. David fasted and he did not throw a feast. David strongly led everybody who was under his sphere of influence to honor Saul rather than to cast shame upon him. He even went to the point of writing a song of honor for Saul and teaching it to everybody, even commanding that the entire tribe of Judah learn this song and sing it out loud in public. 
by the grace of God and by the power of his spirit, David learned to render honor to whom honor was due even though Saul had been dishonorable toward him, toward Israel, and mainly toward the Lord. When the dust of David's time of mourning settled, I believe that at some point he began to think about the future. He had to think about the future. Saul was dead, that chapter is over, maybe more like a volume was over, and now what? Now where? Now how? What would God do? And although David didn't really know what was going to come next, although he didn't know whether he should stay in Ziklag, that scorched city, and rebuild it, or whether he should go back to his homeland of Judah, he knew what to do when he did not know what to do. Namely, he sought the Lord. David went into the presence of his father and he talked to him. He asked him, oh father, what shall I do? There's so many details in this chapter that I want to bring before us today and that hopefully there's even more that you can meditate on later and I pray that we'll do that. But I want to pause here at least just long enough to celebrate this fact. David's heart was now again fully captured and turned toward God. Do you remember, it was not too long ago, for our sake, it was only a few weeks ago, we were looking at a time of David's life where for 18 solid months, he basically backed away from God because he just couldn't do it. In his weariness, there was so much distance. There was numbness. There was, there was, there was just a, a distance between him and God, a lack of intimacy between him and the Father. And by the grace of God, this intimacy has been restored And one of the primary ways I know that is because when there's a major crossroads, David's instinct now is to go and talk to his father. So how about you? You had a crossroads? You got a decision to make? Don't make it on your own. Go talk to your father. Your father's arms are open wide. His heart is open wide. He's waiting to receive you. And he was there waiting to receive David. And so David said, Father, what shall I do? Shall I stay here or shall I return to my homeland of Judah? And I can imagine that the father's heart just glowed with the request and he said, oh my son, go back home. Go back to where you belong. Frankly, my son, you never should have come here in the first place, so go back. David said, father, where specifically shall I go? Judah's a big place. It's kind of like saying in 2003, the Lord clearly told Kim and I in a prayer session. We were praying for 24 hours with these friends of ours. And in the middle of that session, which was about other things, the Lord clearly said to us, it's time for you to go back to Minnesota. So it's like, okay, but Minnesota's a big place. (laughs) Where shall we go? And the Lord instructed us. David did the same thing. Judah's a big place, Lord. Where shall I go? The father said, go, my son, to the town of Hebron. I prepared a place for you there. And so now he heard clearly from God David was not acting in his flesh. He got his marching orders from his father. And in faith and in obedience, he gathered up both of his wives. By the way, we will talk about them next week. And he gathered up his 600 men. And they gathered up all their families. And they made the day or two long journey from Ziklag up to Hebron, which was about 18 miles straight south of Jerusalem. And surely, oh beloved, surely, when the people of Hebron saw David crest over the horizon. Surely they rejoiced greatly that in the wake of the death of Saul, their native son had finally come home. 
And surely the people of that town gathered around him and helped him. Can you just imagine it? Can you just see them all coming out of their houses, helping them gather their things, helping them settle their things, helping them to either build or occupy houses, helping them to settle down and really make a home in that place? God had sent David home, and God said, go to that city, and surely God prepared a hospitable heart in the people of that city, and they received David. And when that was all done, when they were all settled, not only the leaders of Hebron, but all the leaders of Judah came to that place and they did something very, very sacred, very, very historical. They anointed David to be the king of the tribe of Judah. And the name Judah means praise. So David is the king of the tribe of praise. That's the title of the sermon for today. And that's why. These leaders did not have it in their grasp to make him the king over all of Israel because if they did, they would have surely done that. But they didn't have that power, and so they did what they could do. They followed in obedience what the Lord had called them to do, and they made David king over one tribe, the tribe of praise. Now, some of you might be wondering why they did this when the Lord had already anointed David as king. Do you remember that? It's been quite a while ago. It was all the way back in 1 Samuel 16. But the Lord sent Samuel to call David out from his family, and the Lord anointed David as king there. So if he anointed him there some 12, 15 years previously, why are they anointing him again? Are they, are they overturning? Are they just duplicating what God had already done? Well, I simply believe that whereas the Lord had called and anointed David in 1 Samuel 16, he simply confirmed that calling and made a public ceremony of it now in 2 Samuel chapter 2. I was ordained and sent out as a preaching pastor on Pentecost Sunday in May of 1999. The whole ceremony is as clear in my mind as clear could be. But I had received a very clear call to be a preaching pastor 10 years before that, another time in my life that's also very clear, months before I met this beautiful woman right here. And I publicly surrendered to that call in front of our church. And the church celebrated with me that when the day was right, I would be sent out as a pastor. But it took 10 years, beloved. It took 10 years. And when the church that ordained me and sent me did what they did, they were not overturning or duplicating what God had previously done. They were just confirming what God had done, right? They're celebrating what God had done. Same thing's happening here. This is not a duplication and it's not an insult to the Lord. It is a confirmation that God himself had called David to be king. And please notice that David orchestrated exactly none of the circumstances that brought this about. God did it. And I remember in my own life, when I received my call to preaching, I did not say this out loud, but I said to the Father in my heart, Lord, I will do nothing to try to make this come about. Because if you have called me, you will bring it about. And I only need to rest in you and relax in you and prepare myself. And by his grace, that's exactly what I did. So led by the Spirit of God as they were, the people of Judah declared David to be what God had much earlier called him to be, the king of the tribe of praise. And having called this poetic and praise-filled leader to be their leader, they then told him about what had happened with the body of Saul. They told him about those people way up in the north and the east, across the Jordan River, Israelites though they were. 
who had been so loyal to Saul for so long because Saul had shown kindness to them. And they told David, David, they went and rescued the body of Saul and they gave him a proper burial. And I'm not sure exactly what the tribal leaders of Judah thought David would do. I'm not really sure what they wanted or what they expected, but what I do know is what David did. Rather than taking their kindness towards Saul as an insult, rather than seeing this as an act of aggression, rather than striking out against them, rather than trying to squelch whatever honorable feelings they had towards Saul, rather than trying to dominate the people of the Northeast, you know what David did? He wrote to them and he blessed them and he encouraged them for their kindness to this one who was the anointed of God. Amazing. This is the grace of God overflowing in the heart of the king. This is his first official act, his first official decree as king. He sends a note of grace and blessing and favor. Let's see exactly what he said, verses five through seven. Leaders, people of Jabesh Gilead, may you be blessed by the Lord, by Yahweh, because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and you buried him. You see, there's no animosity in David's heart, beloved. There's no, aha, I got the best of Saul in his heart. He's glad that they honored this man. Now may the Lord, may Yahweh show his steadfast love and his faithfulness to you. May he return your kindness upon your own head. And I will do good to you. I will not come against you. I will not oppose you. I will not fight you. I will not seek to dominate you. Because you have done this thing. I am for you. I am not against you. The message is clear. Now therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant. For Saul, your Lord, is dead. And the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Beloved, David's destiny in the Lord was to be the king of Judah and indeed to be the king of all Israel. But I believe that his heart and his mind and his eyes were fixed upon the Lord. And he was determined to do the right thing no matter what the consequences David did not have to politic in order to become the king of all the tribes of Israel. He did not have to do that. And why? Because God had clearly called him. And God would make it come about. Amen? Listen, if God has called you to something in your life, you don't have to make it happen. You can rest in your father. You can wait upon your father. He may take more time than you want him to take. In fact, he probably will take more time than you want him to take. But rest in him. He knows what he's doing. He's for you. He's been working out circumstances for his people for a little bit of time. He has experience. Trust him. Rest in him. This was David's heart. And he's only 30 years old. This is a young man filled with faith and love and trust in God. And I pray with all my heart that we will emulate him in this. David's first act, as I said, beloved, was a great act of grace because the grace of God is just overflowing in the life of this guy. And I really, really, really profoundly respect him from that. I want to be like him when I grow up. Now, while David, the man of faith, was actively extending an olive branch of grace toward the people of Israel, Saul's cousin and the commander of his army, army, a man named Abner, who was also a man of flesh. He was actively seeking to undermine and to overcome David. We're gonna learn in a couple weeks from now that Abner clearly knew 
that God had called David to be the king of all Israel and that one day David would rise to that position. Abner even preached it to other people. He knew this was going to come about and yet the flesh has a really twisted logic, doesn't it? The flesh is sick and it says, yes, the Lord said that, but I want this, so I'm gonna do what I want. And because of this, he consciously worked against the purposes of God, and he consciously sought to make Saul's son, Ishbosheth, to be the king of the rest of Israel. And when we carefully meditate on what the author says in verses 8 through 11, we see that this work that Abner was working actually took quite a bit of time. I don't want to go through all the details with you because it would take, it'd be, just get a little too tedious to work that out. But let me just summarize for you and say that five years of time pass between the end of chapter, or, or verse seven, and the end of verse 11. Five years, gone. It took five years for this to happen. Abner went from one city to another, working his people, politicking as hard as he could politic, using all of his prestige, all of his power in Israel, which was pretty great, by the way. He was, in fact, much more powerful than Saul's own son. And he politicked and he politicked and he politicked until he got his way, until his will came to pass, until Saul's son, Ishbosheth was the king. But when he brought his plans to pass, as we'll see in the next couple of weeks, they didn't last very long because they did not come from the Lord. In the scope of history, it was just a breath that this young man was king. The author tells us here that Ishbosheth was 40 years old when Abner, not the Lord, Abner made him to be king over Israel, and he only reigned for two years, while David, that whole time, continued to reign over Judah, the tribe of praise. Uh, in other words, Ishbosheth could not overcome what David, what God was doing in the life of David. Having installed his flesh-filled king, Abner then extended a sword of division toward David's olive branch of peace. This is a, just a picture in my mind that's been so powerful this week. I've imagined David standing on one side and Abner on the other. David has an olive branch and an open hand, crying peace, and Abner takes up his sword and says, no, sir, we shall fight. Abner gathered all his men, and he traveled from far up in the northeast. He was in this little town that was by Jabesh Gilead. He surely had heard David's note he might have even read it himself, but that didn't mean much to him. So he gathered his men, and he travels probably two days long to get to the city called Gibeon, which was right on the border of Judah. So the, the town was inside the tribe of Benjamin, but it's right on the border of Judah. So what I want us to see is that Abner is not invading the territory of Judah, but he's literally amassing his troops right along the border. And the message was very, very clear. This was an act of aggression, and he was planning some sort of attack, and it was probably going to come soon. David had a nephew. His name was Joab. He was a military man and a, and a confidant of David. And so Joab gathered the men of Israel and he went out to meet Abner. He stood up to him right in that place and basically with his presence said, you have gone that far but you will go no farther. They met at a place called the Pool of Gibeon. And I really do want to ask you not to do this right now in the service. We'll stay focused on the Lord and, and on what he's doing here. But I want to encourage you later to take out your phone or your computer and Google the Pool of Gibeon. Because in 53, 1953, they found this pool. And it's a pretty amazing little site. And we know that this is right where this little battle happened. 
Abner's on one side of the pool. Joab and his men are on the other side. They're facing off. This is the first battle between the man of faith and the man of flesh. What will happen? Abner is the one to speak of aggression, and he says to Joab, he says, hey, why don't we do this? Why don't I send some of my men down there and you send some of your men and let's allow them to have a contest? By which he meant, let's let them fight to the death. He was clear and Joab knew it, but Joab did not flinch. So Abner sent 12 of his men, Joab sent 12 of his men, and the Bible simply and quickly says that they all caught each other by the head and they all put each other to death. 24 guys died very quickly right there on the spot. If one side or the other had won that day, who knows what would have happened? But because this ended in a very sort of deadly stalemate, in a draw, if you will, what ended up happening was that a protracted battle broke out for that whole entire day, and they went at it against each other. And the Bible gives us almost no detail, but it does say the most important thing about this day. The most important thing to know is this. David and his servants, led by Joab, David was not on the scene, but David's servants overcame Abner and his servants. This is a very important point. It's going to be repeated again and again and again. Why? Because the Lord is trying to say, I have purposes in the life of David, and no man of flesh is going to thwart those purposes. Nothing is going to stop this. Let him lift up his sword toward the olive branch. He will not stop me. So David's men overcame Abner's men. Joab happened to have his two brothers there with him. His youngest brother's name was Asahel. Asahel was full of vigor. And he was very fast and he was very focused and so he sees Abner on the battlefield and he goes after him and goes after him with a vengeance. The Bible says that he would not turn to the left, he would not turn to the right. He was so focused. He just felt like he had to get this guy. But he wasn't very experienced. So at some point Abner's going, man, I wish this guy would get off my tail because I don't want to turn around and kill him because I know the implications of what will happen if I kill Joab's little brother. I do not want to do that. So Abner turns around and says, Asahel, is that you? Asahel says, it is. And the implication to me is clear. It is, and I'm coming to get you, and nothing's going to stop me, Abner. Abner sees that this kid will not be dissuaded, and so he says, listen to me, young man. It's going to be better for you if you go to the left or to the right. Just pick any of my guys and go get them. Take their spoil. Do whatever you got to do, but get off my tail. Believe me, it will be best for you if you get off my tail. The young man would not be dissuaded. And so, since there's kids in the room, I'm not going to tell the details. The Bible's a little detailed at this point, a little gory. But the bottom line is, Abner is a master. This is a warrior. So he turns and he puts this guy to death. And he's laying there on the ground, and the Bible says that everybody from Joab's side that came upon the scene and saw Asahel there dying, they just stopped in their tracks. They were, they were either shocked or afraid. I don't know exactly which, but all I know is that they stopped. Joab, however, would not be dissuaded. His young brother had just been killed, so he took his other brother, and they kept going after Abner, and they went, and they went, and they went. It says until the sun set, they went after him. And right about the time the sun was setting, Abner climbed up a hill, and there a bunch of people from the tribe of Benjamin joined him as one man, the Bible says. And as one man, they stood off against Joab and his brother, two against many. And Abner shouted out, he shouted with all of his heart to Joab, and he said this, I think you can see it in verse 26. Abner, the guy who started this whole thing, says, shall the sword devour forever? Hypocrite. 
Do you not know that the end will be bitter? Yeah. How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? I don't know exactly what Joab thought about this, but I do know what he said. Verse 27, as God lives, Abner, as God lives, if you had not said these words, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until morning. And the implication is clear. We would have won. We would have devastated you all the more. But this for whatever reason, did persuade Joab, and so he blew the trumpet, he called his troops off, and with that, the battle, the first battle was over. Abner took his men, they went all the way back up to the north, near Jabesh Gilead, and Joab took his men, and they went back to the city of Hebron, where David was. The Bible says that 20 of David's men died that day. A day-long battle, only 20 men dead. And remember, 12 of them fell at the pool of Gibeon. So in this whole day-long battle, only eight more guys died. At the same time, 360 of Abner's men died. And while the Bible tells us these figures because they represent the reality of what happened, I think, as I said earlier, the more important point is that the purposes of God through David were unstoppable. And the man of flesh, Abner, could take his ten tribes. So David's the king of one tribe, then the, the tribe of Levi has to be put to the side. Ishbosheth and Abner are over ten more tribes. They take ten tribes and come against this one little tribe, and they cannot win. Why? Because God is with David. God is working out his purposes, and nothing will stop him, beloved. David is going to rise to be the king, not only of Judah, but of all of Israel. And even though some in Israel resisted him, we're going to see in the next couple weeks that even their resistance was part of the plan of God. Even their resistance was used by the Lord to enact the purposes that he had for David and for Israel. Such is the grace of God toward those who look to him. These plans were there and they were certain. But I want us to understand that they took time to work out, and for David, there was much mystery involved in them because he didn't know at the time everything that we now know. As I said earlier, at the beginning of chapter two, David was 30 years old, okay? By the time we get to verse eight, he's already 35 years old. Half of his 30s are gone in waiting for the Lord. And after those five years were done, beloved, he had another two and a half years to wait before God fulfilled the next phase of his purposes in his life. Three quarters of David's 30s were spent waiting on the Lord. Do you see that? Three quarters of his 30s spent waiting and wondering what would come next. And what made especially those latter two and a half years more difficult is that he did not know at the time how long they would last. He went through a 10-year battle with Saul. Would this battle with Abner last two years, five years, 10 years, more? He did not know. He did not know, beloved, and don't think that this was easy for him. All David could do in this time was learn to live by faith in his God. Do you see this? Can you feel what he must have felt? Can you see yourself, your own story in his story? All he could do was learn to look to the Lord and trust that his purposes and promises and plans would come about. All he could do was learn to live by faith and with patience. A tremendous amount of patience, especially for somebody in their 30s. And he had to learn what it meant to persevere day by day by day. 
just doing what God gave him to do that day, trusting that he would fulfill all of his plans someday. David had to live by faith. Now, I do want to say that as hard as this period of time was for David, I think the Bible's clear that these years were not a waste. I hope we can see that. The Lord was at work in David while David was waiting upon the Lord. The Lord's at work in us while we're forced to wait upon him too. First of all, the Lord did provide this joy for David. At least he was now the king of something, right? For so many years, he was the wandering leader of 600 vagabonds, basically. And now God had established him somewhere. He gave him a throne. He made him the king over something, and surely there was great joy in that. And furthermore, even though there was a long skirmish between him and Abner, which we'll see more about next time, David was no longer running for his life every single day of his life. He was no longer under the constant threat of death. He was no longer having to move from one place to another, living in caves and in holes in the ground. At least in this time, beloved, God did give him a bit of rest in his time of reigning. Do you see that? Even in the time of suffering, even in the time of waiting, God provided for him joy. And during these seven and a half years, in some ways I look at it and it seems to me like, wow, his 30s, so full of passion, strength, vigor, they're being wasted. No, they're not being wasted. God is developing his mind. David was a man of the word of God. We know this for a fact. Oh, in those seven and a half years, I can just imagine all the long seasons of meditation David had upon the word of God. God was developing his affections, all those passions that we see explode upon the pages of the Psalms were surely developed in this time. God was developing his will, teaching him to bend his will toward the will of his father, trusting in him day by day by day. God was shaping David's character so that he's ready for the next season that God had for him. Do you see that? Beloved, the season of waiting is not a wasted season. Indeed, the Lord is working in us while we are forced to wait upon him. David's 30s were not a waste. They were a time of preparation. And I'll tell you what, there were about, oh, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of people at least in the tribe of Judah that were following David at this time, and their lives during these seven and a half years were also not a waste. As they waited and wondered what God would do, some of them in their teens, their 20s, their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, maybe even in their 80s, some had to wait and wait, some waited to the point of death, but it was not a waste. God was preparing all of them for the future glory. Beloved, this was not a time of waste. This was a time of preparation. In these seven and a half years, God did so many things for the glory of his name. But I pray that you'll take the time to stop and reflect on that fact. Seven and a half years passed in just a few small verses. Beloved, learn to be patient with the Lord. The purposes, the promises, the plans of God at work in the life of David to me are beautiful and in some ways they're very amazing, especially when I think about where he started, you know, a little shepherd boy and where he's at now. It's really amazing. But as amazing as they are, as beautiful as they are, they give us a small glimpse, a very small glimpse of the plans that God has for us in Christ. And this is not an accidental glimpse. David himself, as he matured and later looked back upon his life and meditated on the word of God, 
and prayed for wisdom about things to come. David himself saw that his whole life was a metaphor for Christ. He saw this. I don't know how clearly David saw Christ, but I am certain that he saw him, at least through a dark glass, if you will. I am certain that David at least glimpsed the glory of Jesus' face and the purposes of God the Father in him and through him and for him and for all the nations. I am certain of this. And the primary reason I'm certain of this, and so many others are certain of this, is because all of the explicit things David wrote about Jesus that are then quoted in the New Testament as being about Jesus. There's some ways that Psalm 8 and Psalm 110 and other Psalms are interpreted in the New Testament that when you look back and really think it through, you have to come to realize that David himself knew that one much greater than him was coming in his pattern who would be a fulfillment of his entire life. David knew that the details of his life were a living metaphor for someone whose life was so much greater. Think about Psalm 2 with me for a minute. In fact, you can turn there if you want. Psalm 2, I just want to read a few verses. I'm going to read verses 1 through 2, and then I'm going to skip down to verses 7 through 9. This came out of a time of prayer, out of a time of meditation, as David was filled, Peter says, with the Spirit of Christ and prophesied about Christ. In Psalm 2, he said, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Why do the kings of the earth set themselves up and the rulers take counsel together? They act so much like Saul did. They act so much like Abner is acting even now. But now they're doing so against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. However, look down in verse 7. David continued, I will speak of the decree. That is, the decree that the Lord made about somebody other than me. The Lord said to me, that is to Jesus, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, we know that this is about Jesus because the New Testament quotes it saying that it's about Jesus. So I'm utterly confident about this. And I know that to some extent, whatever extent that was, David knew that he was writing about someone so much greater than himself. When he looked back to his own seasons of opposition and his long seasons of waiting, David saw the life of Christ, that he also would face tremendous opposition and that he would have to wait and wait and wait upon the Lord. Don't forget that Jesus prepared for 30 years just for a three-year span of ministry. Oh, believe me, beloved, David and more so, Jesus Christ had to learn to wait upon the Father. When David looked back to the olive branch that he extended to the people of Israel and the sword that they raised up back toward him, he surely saw, he surely saw that the day was coming when Jesus Christ would himself be the olive branch of peace to the world. And David surely saw that the nations would in return raise up a sword and kill so many of his messengers returning hatred for tremendous everlasting love. David knew that his life was a metaphor for Christ. 
when David was much older and looked back upon his whole life and saw the power of God that did in fact raise him up to be the king of all of Israel. He saw in himself another one who would rise up also to be the king of the tribe of praise, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he knew that that one also would rise up to be the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords who would sit on the very throne of heaven and that no one would stop this from happening. David wrote with his own hand, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. He has made you both king and priest forever. And now the father, David wrote, David wrote, has you sitting in his right hand until he puts all of your enemies under your feet, just like he put all of my enemies under my feet. David saw that in Christ, the purposes of God could never be stopped and would never be stopped. As we reflect on all of this and David's life and David's story, I don't think that we should, at this point, identify ourselves so much with David himself. I think right now we should be identifying ourselves with all the people who were under David in the tribe of Judah, waiting with him upon the Lord. Because David himself is clearly a great and living symbol of Jesus Christ himself. The Lord would rise up to that very throne and fulfill everything that it was ever supposed to mean. We are like the people who look to our king and who trust and hope in our king. But oh, our trust and our hope is so much more profound. As admirable as David was, he was just a man, right? We've seen how broken he is. And believe me, next week we're going to see this guy had problems. I got problems, you got problems, all God's children got problems, my African-American friends used to say. David had problems, big problems. We're going to see this more next week. But Jesus, not so much. He is the perfect praising king, the infinitely holy leader of all of God's people. And beloved, we look to him in faith and we wait upon our father in faith as we do so. David led the people of Judah to live with patience and in perseverance, trusting that God would enact all of his promises. And for us, we do the same thing. We look to Jesus Christ. We hear the purposes. We hear the promises. We trust in the plans. And we simply know that God will fulfill everything that he has said he will do. We learn to live by faith, beloved. We are like the people of Judah. And I pray that God will give us insight into that. I just feel in my heart as I have prayed the last couple days that some of you just really need to hear this message. You're weary and you're wondering where it's all going. And I think the Lord's brought you here to just say to you clearly, I am the Lord and I have not changed my mind. Everything I'm promised to you, I'm going to bring about. So just be patient, my sons. Be patient, my daughters. Look to me. Have joy in the journey and trust me for this fact. I have prepared a joy for you at the destination that you cannot imagine. So let's pray now that God will help us to persevere. Lord, I'm so grateful for your word. I'm so grateful for your wisdom. I'm so grateful for your work in the life of David and the life of these precious people here. I'm so grateful for your work in my life. And I pray that now that the word has been spoken, the message has been preached, I pray that you would use it by the power of your Holy Spirit to greatly encourage us to look to Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, 
the one who will inevitably rise to the great throne of the universe, the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of your great name. Oh, Lord, help us to look to him, to trust in him, to wait upon him. Father, fill us with the spirit of patience and give us the power of perseverance. I thank you, Father, for what you'll do now as we sing. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.